The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Today we take a look at the best and worst aspects of humanity. First off, we meet a woman who has an encounter with a gray alien who's laying there helpless. So what does she do? She takes him home and nurses him back to health. And then we travel to the United Kingdom to meet a man whose reign of terror lasted almost 20 years. A man who would sacrifice animals to Satan, put on a wig and a rubber mask, and then adorn himself in nails so his victims felt pain even if they tried to escape. Today on Dead Rabbit Radio. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Dead Rabbit Radio. I'm your host, Jason Carpenter. I'm having a great day. I hope you guys are having a great day too. Hope you guys are having lots of fun. Hope you guys had fun right before listening to this episode, are having fun during it, and have even more fun after it. First off, let's give a shout out to one of our returning Patreons, Elky. Elky, thank you so much for supporting the show, longtime listener. You're going to be our captain, our pilot this episode. If you can't support the Patreon, you know what to do. Just help spread the word about the show. That helps the show grow. That helps so, so much. So, Elky, let's go ahead and hop in that Jason Jalopy. We're going to take a cross-country journey. We are headed out to Douglas, Georgia. So go ahead and control all those. You know how to you know how to drive a car. Stick shift, steering wheel, things like that. There's also a little time travel button, Elky. Go ahead and hit that. We're going back to the year 1992. <laughs> Elkie's driving us through the time stream. We end up in Douglasville, Georgia. It's 2 a.m. in the morning, and our little car is driving out in the middle of nowhere. We see a trailer kind of sitting on the outskirts of the outskirts of town. It's very isolated out here. Driving nice and slowly. In this trailer is a woman. We don't have her name, but we'll call her Nancy. She's sleeping with her husband. They're trying to get some rest. But then... She realizes there's a bright light outside of her trailer. So she gets out of bed. Her husband's fast asleep, and she walks outside. The noise changed because she's closer, I guess, or I just forgot how I did the original noise. She sees out in this clearing, that's where the light is emanating from. So she she's like walking through stuff. She's like moving corn stalks away. Apparently she's in the middle of a cornfield because it's extra creepy. She gets to the clearing and she sees a mushroom-shaped object hovering about 50 feet off the ground. And she's like, I know my mushrooms. They normally don't hover. They definitely don't emit bright light. She begins walking towards this flying mushroom. I'm assuming it doesn't give the size, but I don't think it's the actual size of a little mushroom. I assume it's UFO size, so let's say it's about 50 feet around. Pretty big, right? She's walking towards it, and as she's getting closer, she hears a voice telepathically go, Turn around. It's a real creepy command, right? No one ever tells you to turn around when something good's coming. It's always terrifying. Burglars tell you to turn around. Uh, Axe murderers tell you to turn around. Just, Just run in those cases. But when an alien voice in your head tells you to turn around, you would... 
it, nothing good's going to happen, right? You would think you'd turn around, and the next thing you know, you'll get a holographic sackcloth rubbed over your face with holographic <laughs> holographic chloroform on you. Uh. She turns around, though, and none of that stuff happens. She turns around, and I don't know if she stepped over it the first time, didn't really see it. She was so distracted by this giant UFO, mushroom UFO. Or if it teleported there afterwards, I'm not for sure, but she turns around and laying on the ground, this little gray alien, he's just motionless, just laying there. And she's like, what? I didn't see that? I wouldn't I would I wouldn't have to turn around if I'd seen that in the first place. Little gray alien sitting there. She says he's about four feet tall, laying down technically, he's four feet long at this point. But she also had an interesting observation, his fingertips... We're like little octopus, little, not like, not like, not like, uh, uh, um, what are those octopus arms called? Octopus arms? Tendrils? They were normal fingers, but at the end of the finger were little, like, suction cups. She thought that was kind of weird. And also the fact that there's a four-foot-long gray alien laying in the grass. She's then given instructions from the ship. She's looking at this little alien dude, and the ship says, or whoever is in the ship, says, telepathically, take care of him. Keep him warm. So she says, yeah, okay, okay, voices in my head, I will do this. She picks up this little alien fella, takes the alien into her house, and her first thing is, to keep it warm, body heat, which makes sense, right? She tries waking up her husband, her husband won't wake up. So this part is actually pretty invasive. This part's pretty, pretty messed up. She puts the alien in bed next to her husband. <laughs> her husband's all spooning this alien. He's like, oh, baby, you lost so much weight, he's saying in his sleep. Oh, I love the feel of your skin. It feels like plastic and, ooh, your octopus suckers. Mm, he's having a great dream. He's like, oh, you finally got that surgery I wanted. And she's like, what are you talking about, weirdo? She puts the gray alien in bed next to her husband, and then she crawls into bed, too. So they're like cuddling this alien trying to keep him warm again against the husband's knowledge she can't wake him up that's pretty common in alien encounters like only one person can wake up obviously a skeptic would go she's either dreaming or she's making it up and she goes oh yeah my husband was asleep the whole time but we'll we'll dismiss those two because they poo-poo the whole story she's snuggling up with this alien, this gray alien, and her husband's snuggling up with it, too. He's like, oh, yeah, I love this little... I love what you've done with your hair. I love how you're bald, and your head has gotten massive. And she's like, oh, my God, he has some weird fetishes. But she realizes the alien doesn't seem to be getting any better. He's just still just laying there motionless. So then she goes, okay, sandwiching him between two homo sapiens didn't work. I know what I'll do. So she takes him out to the couch. Also, probably, her husband was probably burping and farting the whole time. She's like, oh, Gary, you're a horrible representative of humanity. She takes him outside. The alien wakes up long enough to be like, be you. And so she takes him out, out of the bedroom and puts him down on the couch. And then she makes food. She takes some saltine crackers. She's crunching them up. She pours in a little bit of warm water, which is gross, right? No one wants to eat that. No one wants to eat that. But you figure... This is probably what you give a baby, or you give someone, it's the, the least toxic ingredient you could find. You wouldn't want to be like, yummy, 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 strawberry milk, made straight out of a cow's booby, and give it to give it to someone who might be lactose intolerant. Might not even seen a cow. Actually, they have. They've been abducting them for 100 years. But you, salt, you can't go wrong with uh, crackers and water, right? So she's making this. And the alien's laying there, and then she gets a little spoon, and she holds it up to his mouth, and he goes, mm. and he eats some of it. So she's like, Huck, rock, by alien. 
in your spaceship. Don't know the rest of the words. And she's just feeding the alien this stuff. And then she says she loses time. She's feeding the alien this saltine and water. And the next thing she knows, she's standing outside in front of this object again. And the alien is now standing up. He's standing underneath the ship. And this beam comes down. And he goes... Gets teleported into the ship. She's like, he didn't say thank you for all those crackers. He didn't even pay me the money, man. You know, that was... How am I... What am I supposed to put in my suit tomorrow? But she doesn't say that. She looks over and she sees five other great aliens. And she said... They were lined up in military style. So like shoulder to shoulder, I guess. And they all just stood there staring at her. She's looking at them and she's like, well, I can go buy more crackers if you want. But, and she said the aliens would turn and then one by one walk into the beam of light. And get teleported back up into the ship. The next one will walk up. And then after the fifth one had been sucked up into the ship. She said the ship disappeared with the sound of a thundercrack. She's like, what type of thundercrack was that? I didn't sound like thundercrack. Sound like some guy like playing NBA Jam or something like that. What was that? Boom shakalaka, the ship takes off. And so that's the end of that story. I think it's a, a interesting story because you have This is one of those stories that you can really put yourself into the place of the person. Like, some of the stories, people get abducted, and they're, like, strapped down, and aliens putting needles in their brain. And they're so extreme. Like, you would think what you would do in that story, but most of them come down to, you really don't have much choice, right? The aliens have teleported you aboard their ship. You're in a cage. Oh, let me out, let me out. The cage next to you contains a bear. cage to the left is some hysterical person. Your options are pretty limited. You can stay in the cage, or they take you out of the cage and they run experiments on you. This is a story where the person has a lot of options, and I think it's such a uplifting story. I think this is what would happen in most cases. We covered a story a, a couple weeks back about the uh, lumberjacks who came across an alien who was dying in the river. And he's like, don't touch me. Here's, my, here's how we do our final rites and stuff like that. The lumberjack was just kind of listening to him, trying to console him. I think those stories are how a lot of... If we weren't in an abduction scenario, I think most... Yesterday, we even talked about a woman who gave an alien an exorcism. I think in the most case, humans are very benevolent. I think that we do tend to do terrible things, but in a vacuum, I think humans tend to do the right thing. I think if an alien came to you asking for... I think, one, if a normal human came to you asking for help, you didn't think it was some sort of scam or setup, you would help them. If you honestly believed that they needed help and you didn't think that they were trying to rip you off, you would help them. And I think an alien, obviously, <laughs> he's not like, hey, can I have some money? You're like, are you going to spend it on space drugs? He's like, uh... And the next thing you know, you're abducted, you're being turned into space drugs. If, if an alien's just laying there and he's like, uh, I'm super cold and I need help, I've been wounded, I think most people would take care of it. In a vacuum, obviously, if you're a professional alien hunter or if you need some new alien skin boots, you might chop the dude up. But not actually, now that I say that, we've covered a ton of stories where aliens seem to be able to know who to appear in front of. So if you've never seen an alien, it's because they're choosing not to be seen by you. Even if you haven't seen a UFO, they're choosing not to be seen by you. As opposed to a ghost, which simply just manifests in an area. 
Aliens seem to be a little more picky, so they may have been flying around Douglasville. And this alien's like, I'm not going to make it, dude. They're like, no, no, we're going to fly to Tibet. We know this guy out there. He's totally going to be good. He's all, Bleh. He's like, I'm not going to make it, man. Just pick someone. Just pick someone. Finally, they were able to psychically select this woman who they knew would mother this alien rather than smother this alien. Because those are the only two choices, right? Elkie, let's go ahead and hop in that carbon copter. We're going to wave goodbye to Nancy. <laughs> I notice Elkie has a new pair of alien skin boots. I'm like, Elkie. We're getting in that carbon copter. Elkie, take us out of Douglasville, Georgia. We're headed out to the United Kingdom. I'm going to warn you guys as he's taking this flight. This is one of those stories that's a little dark. It's a little depressing. So if you've been having a great day, you might not want to listen to it. It's not uber dark but it's pretty intense so if that's not your cup of tea i'll see you tomorrow if it is if you're some sort of weirdo who likes reading and hearing about this stuff stay on board the carbon copter elkie's like i don't have a choice do i he's like no carbon copter is headed out to groville that sounds like a place from sesame street but it's a real place apparently groville that's on the island of jersey in the United Kingdom. It's 1957. Carpenter Copter's going to land in Groveville. And as we're walking into town, we see an orphanage. There's a woman. She's waving to all the kids. The kids are like, where are we going? We're orphans. And she's like, oh yeah, come back. Come back. They're like, aw. The or- I'm sure they go to school. I'm sure eventually the orphanage. I don't think an orphanage is like a prison where you just have to watch Annie 24-7. You're like, oh, this is the real torture. I think, you know, you go out to go go to school and stuff like that. But anyways, she's like hanging out with all these kids and stuff like that. We're walking by the orphanage and we see a bunch of kids having fun. We see the woman who runs it and then we see her husband, Edward Paisnell. He's 35 years old and he's building a little room on the side of the orphanage. Because he's a construction worker. That's the sound of a hammer. Now, both of them are pillars of the community. She's super well-known. She's a great surrogate mother to all of these children. And he is just known as being a great guy, all-around great guy. He needed something built. He was there. If you provided you had money, (laughs) he doesn't run a charity. His wife runs a charity. And when he's not out doing construction work, he's just... Someone you kind of want to hang out with. Both of these people were examples for how people should act. He actually, every year, played Santa Claus in town. That was his reputation. But it was a false reputation. At the house, he had his own private room. It was a place that no one was supposed to go. And that wouldn't bring, to me, that would be very suspicious, but I guess that's a thing. Sometimes men have like, I get that men have like the man cave and they have like stuff in their houses. They'll have their den, but it's never like, don't go in there. It's like your wife goes in to like bring you a magazine. (laughs) What are you doing here? Like I've been in houses with dens. I don't think my family ever had it. My dad had like a workspace because again, he was a minister. But we'd go in there and make photocopies and stuff like that. He wouldn't be like, what are you doing? He's like crawling on the ceiling. His head spins around. Get out. I mean, it's just a place that he went to work, but it wasn't off-limits. This dude, Edward, has a room that was off-limits to everybody. And he would go into this room sometime just to work. You know, he's a handyman. He's going to go in there. He's just going to try out those new nails he's heard so much about. These nails have points on both ends. So he goes in there, and there's this red curtain against the wall. 
but he ignores that for now. It's not time to unveil the red curtain. He opens up a box. And inside it is a rubber mask. He pulls it over his face. There's a blonde woman's wig that he's now wearing as well. He goes to his closet, and there sits a heavy trench coat. It's studded with nails. He puts on his cuffs that have nails sticking out of them as well. Then he turns to the red curtain, throws it back. It's his altar to Satan. At that point, I guess this episode's darker than I remember it. At that point, there's a cage rattling in the corner of his dark private room. An animal he had caught days before. A rabbit. A cat. A lost puppy. He reaches in to the cage and pulls the animal out and sacrifices it on the altar. That's just the beginning of his night. His reign of terror started back in 1957. And what he would do is late at night, when he'd see a young woman standing at a bus stop waiting for a ride, he'd sneak up behind her and throw a noose over her neck and pull it tight. There's no fighting back from that. There really isn't. He would then lead them like cattle off into the outskirts of town and sexually assault them. Even if you could somehow struggle against the noose around your neck, I mean, that would cause such a shock to your system. Even if you're somehow able to maintain your sanity and fight against the noose around your neck, he was studded with nails. Every time you pushed against him, every time he pushed against you, you would be poked, you would be scratched, you would be pierced. His entire body was a weapon. But like we see with all of these sickos, he doesn't end there. They can go back and they can always say, this Peeping Tom, the reason why they're so hard on Peeping Toms and people who expose themselves in public, some people go, hey, I was just peeing and now I'm a registered sex offender. The reason why the law is so harsh on them is, it's one, it's gross, but two, A lot of times it leads to other actions. The Peeping Tom isn't satisfied with just looking in the windows of co-eds while he was in college for four years. It escalates. He starts off by doing this. He's attacking women at bus stops. And these are women who are 19, 20 years old. Old enough to be standing outside waiting for a bus late at night. Getting off work, leaving a friend's house, something like that. This guy's derangement, that's not enough. He needs to make sure no woman in the city is safe. Anywhere. He would begin to stake out houses during the day, which would be very easy for a construction worker. It's one of the few jobs. Electrician is one that you can do this. Obviously, like police, you could do this super easily. But like, as far as like civilian jobs, construction workers, electricians, plumbers, they give you access to houses. But also, if you see a carpenter, if you see a construction worker, if you see an electrician working on something for a prolonged period of time, it's not even going to ring a bell. If you saw a garbage man outside your house for five hours, that would be kind of weird. But if you saw an electrician kind of poking around your neighbor's house, he gets hired to work in your neighbor's house, you see him kind of walking back and forth between his van, you're not really going to think anything of it. He will be able to stake out your house, and you, you really wouldn't even think about it. He begins to watch houses. 
he begins to keep track of the houses that have young girls. He begins to keep track of what rooms these young girls sleep in. So in the middle of the night, in the place where you should feel the safest, Edward would crawl into these young girls' windows, wearing a rubber mask, a blonde wig, and an outfit covered with nails. There was 13 known attacks that he committed, combined with the bus stops and the house invasions. This went on from 1957 was his first attack. It wasn't until July 10th, 1971, that he was finally caught. Police were obviously looking for this guy, but they had no description of him. You could probably get a height description. His costume, his uniform, served two purposes. One, it completely concealed his identity. Secondly, it was terrifying. And I can almost imagine at first, when he was first attacking the adult women, I'm sure the first one or two, the police probably didn't even believe it was true. It's so insane. But it was true. July 10th, 1971, Edward is driving down the road, and there's an officer who sees him commit some sort of routine traffic violation. Just making a turn without turn signal, not having a tail light. It was something super routine that should have just been, here, Edward, pillar of the community, Santa Claus every year, here is your ticket, you're free to go. That would have been the end of it, but Edward had something in his car that would elicit more questions. So when this cop turns on his siren, Edward hits the gas, and a high-speed chase ensues. At this point, the police are like, I don't care if it's a busted taillight or not, you're outrunning us. We're bringing in everyone to get you. So they finally are able to get this guy to pull over. And lo and behold, in his car is a trench coat with nails sticking out of it, a rubber mask, and a blonde wig. There's actually photos of this, and it is as terrifying as you would imagine it. You can look in the show notes and see photos of this. Now, the police obviously had been looking for this guy for, again, almost 20 years. He'd attacked 13 different people. They go, Edward, okay, It was a routine traffic stop. You're speeding away. We thought that was suspicious. But what is that doing in your car? Why do you have this outfit? Now he goes, oh, that? What? That? Oh, sorry, officer. I'm just on my way to an orgy. That was his actual excuse. And here's a little tip, not to help out future criminals, but if you get busted, don't name something else gross, right, as your alibi. I mean, I guess... I always had a rule, like, if I wanted to call in sick to work, I'd always tell them I had diarrhea, because no one wants any follow-up questions to that. You just go, I have diarrhea, and they just totally let you go. I guess that's the equivalent. The difference was that I was calling in to work. I wasn't trying to outrun the police. I don't think the cops are going to be like, oh, diarrhea? You're free to go. So, they bust this guy. They take the suit in. They search his house, and they find the altar. And they're like, they don't really need any other evidence at this point. I think the cops are really just like, we want to know why he was doing this stuff. We don't really buy his orgy theory. We know all the good orgies in town, and there wasn't one that night. They find the altar. They find the remains of these animals. They start questioning the wife, and they're like, why would he be going out and doing this stuff? And she said, we never had sex. Like, we'd been married, but it was in name only. We have never, ever had sex. So the cops are like, okay, well then, yeah, he must—he didn't do this because he didn't have sex. It's not her fault. But it sh- shows that he couldn't be intimate in a way that wasn't ultra-violent. And if he had done that to his wife, his ruse would have been exposed. He gets sentenced to 30 years in prison. So good job, 
I always complain about the justice system in England, in the United Kingdom, because they're constantly letting people go all the time. Oh, wait. He only uh, served 10 years. Sorry. And he did serve 10 years, and he moved back to that town and goes, Hey, everyone. Remember me? Edward, pillar of the community. I'm out now. Like, he, that's nothing for 13 attacks over the course of 20 years. He serves 10. He got good behavior. England's really good about just letting people go because they're nice in prison. They're like, well, you didn't kill anyone in prison where there's guards everywhere and everyone's your physical equal. You did good here. Let's put you back out in society, dude. So anyways, he's walking around. He was eventually, he was very quickly run out of that city. The people in town did not want him there. He ended up dying three years later. He lived, they didn't let him live there. He moved to the Isle of Wight. So maybe they have a lower, maybe they have a lower threshold for sickos, or they just didn't get the newspaper. That's the story of Edward, or it would be, because those are the 13 known attacks that he had. In 2008, they were doing renovations at the orphanage where him and his wife lived. And while they were doing renovations, they found a child's skull buried there. There was actually reports of several missing children in the area, but they were never solved. And over a 20-year time span, especially if the children who went missing were orphans, cases just slowly went cold. This man who got caught for 13 brutal assaults, did 10 years in prison, and returned home, may have actually also been a murderer. And it wouldn't really surprise any of us, right? A man with that much darkness in his heart. He's sacrificing live animals. He's breeding fear in a community. Snatching women from bus stops. Breaking into young girls' homes. That would all just be a prelude to the act of taking a child's life. Darkness never stops. It is never satiated. It will always push you. To get darker and darker and darker. Until you exist in a world that is so black. You never knew you could be somewhere so devoid of light. A place few humans could even imagine. And even when you stand on that precipice, you still want more. Evil is never satisfied. DeadRabbitRadio at gmail.com is going to be our email address. You can also hit us up at facebook.com slash deadrabbitradio. Twitter is at deadrabbitradio. Dead Rabbit Radio is the daily paranormal conspiracy and true crime podcast. You don't have to listen to it every day, but I'm glad you listened to it today. Have a great one, guys. Deadrabbitradio.com